Our verse today is Mark 12, 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Like I said, I'm going to read it again. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. In this series in the book of Mark called Receiving the King, we are covering the entire book of Mark. And so it's a worthwhile question. Why would we slow all the way down to one verse when we're trying to cover a whole book? Well, actually, there's some sleight of hand going on here. We're actually covering two chapters today. I'm just throwing out one verse. So you're going to look at the one verse, but we're going to move through two chapters. And at the end, you're going to have a little whiplash. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. No, the reason we're slowing down to one verse is because in this verse, Jesus is responding to a number of critics and a number of criticisms that have been coming. And we're going to look at those this morning. And he's, he's responding to all of them with this. And even though as we look at the text, we'll see that he's actually responding to a specific group of people and a specific question, it's also true that this whole text builds to this point here over the course of a couple of chapters. And so we want to find out why does Jesus say this? Very rarely in the Gospels do we get Jesus saying, you are wrong, right? He, he says that to Peter at one point, not using those words, he does say it on occasion, but very rarely do we get this very clear, very direct, you are wrong. So let's find out why Jesus is saying that. And let's ask these questions. What are the scriptures? Jesus says, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So let's ask these questions this morning. What are the scriptures? What are we talking about? Lots of you have an idea. If you come to church with any regularity, you have some ideas about what the scriptures are. Ideas that come from your childhood, ideas that come from your adult life. You know, or at least you think you know, what it is when we talk about the scriptures. And the power of God, maybe less so. Again, probably ideas. Probably some big ideas about how God is all-powerful. But what does it mean when we talk about the power of God? What does Jesus mean when he talks about the power of God? And then why should we want to know? Jesus takes it for granted that you cannot be right unless you know both the scriptures and the power of God. He says, is not the reason you're wrong because you don't know. So at the very least, if we want to be right, we have to know what these things are. But why else? Why else should we want to know the scriptures and the power of God? So we're going to ask those questions. Uh, we're going to pursue those answers this morning. And I ask you to pray with me and for me as we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, your son. All of the good and perfect gifts are from you, Lord. You are the father of lights, and in you there is no shifting shadow. There is no variation due to change, Lord. You are solid. You are the rock. You are firm. You are truth. You are solid ground, Lord, when everything else falls away. And for many of us this week, many things have fallen away, Lord. So I pray that you would show us how to cling to you this morning. Show us how to hold fast to you. I pray that you would open your word to us that we might see wonderful things in your law this morning and understand you better because of our time spent in your word. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
All right, well, I wasn't kidding when I said we were going to cover two chapters. We are going to cover two chapters. And what's going to happen this morning is that I'm going to put a lot on the screen. And for some of you who are note takers, I know I always go too fast. I apologize. I'll try not to go too fast. This really is context. This really is for you to understand how we get to a place where Jesus says to people, you're wrong, and here's the reason that you're wrong. But I want to tell you at least this part in the form of a story. So last week, Brooks was here, and Brooks talked about how Jesus entered Jerusalem in a way that nobody expected. Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, these are Brooks's words, not, not as a king on a horse with a sword or a savior, right? But as this very meek individual riding on a petting zoo animal, right? That's how Brooks described it. Riding in on the foal of a donkey, on a colt. And so that, Brooks said, is the paradox of power. The way that the world would do it is not the way that the world Jesus does it. And that kicks off a series of events in the scripture, in the book of Mark specifically, where we see Jesus interacting with leaders, all kinds of people who have questions for him, who have expectations for him. And in every case, Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand. So what happens is he goes into the temple and he clears out the temple. And most of you are familiar with this story, right? Jesus overturns tables. He makes a whip out of cords. He drives out money changers. There's an interaction with the disciples around a fig tree. There are, I'm sorry, there are temple leaders who question his authority. And then from there, right, we see this parable with Pharisees where Jesus tells them this story that puts them in a terrible light. He says, you all are like tenants who think that you're owners of a vineyard, but in fact, you're just tenants and you're abusing. You're abusing the son, the one who is supposed to be the rightful heir. And then there are questions about paying taxes, about human governments, and finally this interaction with the Sadducees, where the Sadducees come and they bring this ridiculous situation to Jesus. There's a law in Jesus' time. Uh, this, this law is actually it's a Mosaic law. It goes back hundreds of years. It says that if your brother, like your physical brother, if he marries but he has no children and he dies, it's your responsibility to take his wife as your own and to have children with that woman and then give those children your brother's name so that his line doesn't die out. Sadducees take this example to Jesus and they say, let's say this happens seven times over, that a brother dies, has no kids, the, the wife marries the second brother, the third brother, the fourth brother, and they say, like, what happens in the resurrection? Are they all married to this woman? Is the woman have seven husbands then? And they're trying to point out to Jesus, the Sadducees are, that they think the resurrection is ridiculous. And Jesus responds directly to the Sadducees and says, is this not the reason that you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? But understand, that is the specific reference to the Sadducees. And yet all of these people are failing for the same reason. The people who want Jesus to be the savior on the horse with a sword don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And the same thing is true for the Pharisees who think that they are the owners of the vineyard. And the same thing is true for the um, temple leaders who are questioning Jesus' authority and are questioning about human governments and about paying taxes. None of these people know the scriptures or the power of God. And Jesus is therefore responding to all of them with these words, even though he's in the, in the context of that specific chapter, Mark 12, he's responding directly to the Sadducees. So understand that there's been a lot going on. 
right? The reason I bring all this up is to say to you, there's been a lot going on. And in every case, this is the problem that Jesus is encountering. These people don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So let's talk about what the scriptures are. And for those of you who really like verse references, at the back table, um, I'm going to have these printed out. I, I do have them printed out. They're actually there. Um, these verse references. And for those of you who are going to you know, furiously scribble notes, do that. That's great. Some of you are going to take pictures. That's fine. Just don't take pictures of me. Get the screen. What are the scriptures? We are talking about the Old and New Testament. If you come to Grace Community Church, we use the ESV. I can talk to you. Uh, at, at some other time about why we use the ESV. But there are lots of Bible translations. If you go to a Protestant church, there are uh, most likely Bibles in your church with 66 books in the Old and New Testament. If you go to a Catholic church, there are more books in the Bible. If you go to a Jewish synagogue, there are fewer, right? We say that the Old and New Testament comprises the scriptures. So that's what we're talking about, the Old and New Testament. But more importantly than just those 66 books is what those books do, what God is using those books to do. And so let's look at what these books say about themselves. Let's look at what God is telling us in the scripture about himself. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, um, some of these I'm just going to reference, some of them I'm going to turn to and read. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's breath. And then it's useful, right, for teaching and correction and, and reproof. It talks about what the scripture is good for. But most importantly here, I want you to hear that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says to those people who are attacking him, whether verbally or physically, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God, he is saying to them, you are not listening to the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right, that is, that is absolutely what he's saying. He's saying that God's breath has breathed out scripture. And if you want to know God's will, you have to listen to God's voice. So what is scripture? It is God's breath. It's God's words. Psalm 119, uh, 9 through 16. I'm going to turn here in a second. This is, this is a huge psalm, right? If you guys know anything about the psalms, 119 is the longest one. It's a whole series of separate psalms within the psalm. Songs within a song, if you will, or verses within a song that all talk about the wonder and glory of the word of God. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn with me, turn over to Psalm 119. I'm going to read verses 9 through 16, which is just one section. It's the second section. It's very clear. It's very obvious and clear direction from the Lord on what his word is, a guard against sin in this specific case. Verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young woman, how can a young person keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me wander, not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It's a guard against sin. I don't know how many of you struggle with sin, but that's, that's a struggle for me. I find it difficult not to choose myself. 
I frequently want to choose myself. In other words, I frequently want to do the thing that pleases me over and above anyone else. And I frequently want to choose anything besides what God wants for me. And God is telling us in his inspired word, his God breathed word. He's telling us, hide your word, hide my word in your heart. You don't want to sin against me. I don't want you to sin against me. So fill up your heart with my words. It's a guard against sin. Meditate on it, study it, look into it, search it out. It's there for a reason. It's there for your benefit. So it's a guard against sin. And it's embodied in Jesus. And when I say embodied, what I mean is that when Jesus is born, when he's incarnated, when the word becomes flesh, it is the word of God living and acting and moving Jesus does all of the things that the scriptures ask us to do. He lives in the way that God calls us to live. He fully embodies it. John 1.14 says, like, the word becomes flesh. All of this, all of God's direction from the Holy Spirit, all of the guarding against sin, all of that becomes real, becomes a person in Jesus. And so he is going to do all of the things that he's going to ask us to do. He is embodying the scriptures. He made the word. If you read Colossians, Paul talks about all of the things that Jesus is doing in the creation. And he says there in chapter one that there's nothing that's been made that hasn't been made through Christ. Everything has been made through him, for him, even his own words. He embodies them. He speaks them out. He is the word of God. He fulfills the word of God. Turn with me to Romans. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans. What Jesus does is worth paying attention to because he's calling us to do the same. So let's see what he does here. What does Paul say he does in chapter three, starting in verse 21? It says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, a payment by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. That's Jesus might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what Jesus is accomplishing. This is what I mean and what the scripture means when it says that the word is embodied in Christ. Not only does he fulfill the law, but he lives by faith in the way that he calls all righteous people to live by faith. And then finally, he demonstrates the word just with his being, but you guys know this passage. I'm going to turn and read it anyway. John 14 verses six through 14. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? and You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Brooks has read from that passage in the last couple of weeks, reminding us that that is what Jesus has in mind for us. He wants us to be in him in the same way that he is in the Father. He wants that unity for us, and therefore he wants us to know the scriptures because that's what he is doing. He is living out the word of God. He is the word of God, and everything he does, everything he says is pointing us back to the Father, pointing us back to the right relationship we were created to have with God. So when Jesus says to those who are around him and specifically to the Sadducees, is not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He absolutely is saying, is not the reason that you're wrong because you don't know me. You don't know me. Jesus is the embodiment of the scriptures. Everything he does, everything he says, the reason that he rides in on a donkey and not on a horse, the reason why he comes with shouts of Hosanna and not with a sword is because he is embodying the word of God. He is demonstrating to us what God would have done. So if we want to know the scriptures, we have to know Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, you will also get to know, you have to know the scriptures. If you've come to grace and you've come maybe for years, and we talk a lot about being people of the word, we say it's one of our values You talk about uh, with other people around here how hard it is to read the word. Understand, it's because we want you to know Jesus. We don't want you to be Bible scholars for the sake of being Bible scholars. We don't want you to know um, obscure facts about books in the Bible so that you can impress your friends. We want you to know Jesus. Jesus is compassionate for those around him. And ultimately, when he says, the reason you're wrong is because you don't know the scriptures, He's saying, the reason you're wrong about the resurrection, about all of these things, about who owns the vineyard, about whether or not you have to pay taxes, all of that, the reason that you don't understand is because you don't know me. He says something else, right? Jesus says, uh, there is something also here about the power of God. So it's not just the reason that you're wrong is you don't know the scriptures, but nor the power of God. So what is the power of God. Let's talk about that too. Because like I said, we have ideas, right? Most of us, when we hear power of God, we think things like resurrection or we think things like big storms. We think things like creation. All of those are absolutely manifestations of the power of God. But what does Jesus have in mind? What do the scriptures say? Turn back to Psalms. That's the one in the middle. Turn back to Psalm 68. Uh, We were in Psalm 62 this morning. We're just a few verses over from that. Um, Psalm 68 at the end here is just a recognition of what we mean by the power of God. Just the last two verses. Psalm 68, 34 and 35. It says, ascribe power to God. That word ascribe, it means... Give it to this person. 
If you're going to ascribe glory to God, that means you're going to recognize that it is glory that belongs to God. If you're going to ascribe power to God, it's power that belongs to him. So ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 68 says that God is power. He's the giver of power. He's the source of power. If we're going to talk about where power comes from, we've got to point back to this guy. God is power. So when we talk about the power of God, we're talking about him. We're talking about the person of God. We're also talking about the gospel. Um, Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God. God himself is power, and then God as power is consistent also with the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news. That's all the word gospel means is good news. What's the good news? That that sin that we talked about this morning, that we confessed to the Lord, that that sin that I said so easily entangles me, and I know for many of you, easily entangles you. It does not have to result in our death. This is the gospel, that Jesus came and he died and he rose again, and all we need to do is have faith and believe. And Paul says that is, in fact, the power of God, the good news itself. Peter says it's a guard on our faith, similar to what Psalm 119 says, that if we hide his word in our heart, we won't sin against him. And Peter says, similarly, right? The power of God guards us in our faith. And then again, it's Jesus. So we're coming back to this idea of what is the scriptures? They're Jesus. What is the power of God? It's Jesus. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 25 says this about Jesus. Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The paradox of power, right? The king who does not come on a horse with a sword, but the king who instead comes on the foal of a donkey. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what's that folly? What is the foolishness here? The foolishness is that we cannot affect our own salvation. The foolishness here is that no number of sacrifices is going to earn our salvation. The foolishness here is that we just have faith. And yet that is what Jesus calls us to. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So you should be hearing the same answer in both cases. What are the scriptures and what are the power of God? They're both Jesus. If we want to understand the scriptures, we have to understand Jesus. If we want to understand the power of God, we have to understand Jesus. We have to know him. We want to understand this person, not just this power. We're not talking about a magic formula. We're talking about a person who embodies all of these things. How many of you have read a passage in the scriptures or you've heard one maybe read in church and you thought that sounds great. 
Maybe you've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at a wedding service. It talks about love being patient and kind. Or maybe you've heard the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians, and you thought, oh, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, those are all wonderful things. I would love to have those things. Maybe you've heard about the passages in the Gospels where Jesus gives up his life. Understand that this is all a person we're talking about. This whole book is talking about a person. And so if you want to know the scriptures and the power of God, if you want to be right about what's going on around you, you have to know Jesus. Some of you are going to say, God's power is scary. Right? Some of you are going to say, I am frightened by this idea that God can unmake me. I don't like the floods. I'm not a big fan of the, um, of the trial. I'm not a big fan of the, the lightning and the sickness and the pestilence and the sword. Right? All of that stuff. God is frightening. He is scary. I don't like the power of God. If Jesus is the power of God, maybe I don't like Jesus. Because that's scary. That's frightening. I don't know what to do with that. Understand that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what it says directly in Romans 2. God is powerful, but he does not use his power like we would use our power. We would choose to use our power to glorify us for our own sake. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to show you how this works. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to take on life. I'm going to take on flesh and I'm going to give it up for you. And even though God is the only one as creator who deserves the glory and the honor, he says, I'm going to lay it aside. I'm going to let myself be sacrificed for you. And that's what Paul means. That's what the scripture means when it says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. God has the right to demand whatever. If he is the creator, if you believe that, if you accept that God is the creator, that the universe is made by him and for him, he has the right to raise up and lower who he would raise up and lower. But he says, instead, I'm not going to consider that. I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to take on the form of a servant. I'm going to sacrifice myself for you guys. And I hope that that kindness leads you to repentance, to turning around, to going the other way. And maybe that's not your issue. Maybe you just look at the scriptures and you're like, that's hard. Like it was written in a different language. You guys translated it. I'm not sure you did a great job. It's hard. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to read. Some of you are not readers, right? I don't know why. I don't understand that. doesn't really resonate with me. I believe that you exist. But some of you are not readers, and that's okay. The scriptures are difficult. Don't ever pick up the Bible and just assume that it's just going to be a light trip through like the Sunday comics. I don't think there are Sunday comics anymore, but you understand what I'm saying, right? It's not going to be simple and easy, not because God is trying to make it hard, but because getting to know a person is never simple and easy. If you want to know the scriptures and the power of God, that means you want to know Jesus. And if you want to know another person, you have to be committed to spending time with that person. And so do that. Do that. Read in community with other believers because other believers know the person of Jesus. And you can all help one another to know Jesus better. I'm going to read both of the verses here. Um, Joshua 1.18 says this. 
I'm almost at the point where I need the large print Bible. Soon. Do I have the, no, 1-8, I'm sorry, 1-8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success. An admonition from God to Joshua about being in the scriptures. And then 1 Thessalonians, Paul is encouraging the church in Thessalonica to be in community, <coughs> pardon me, to be in community so that they all can know Jesus better. I'm going to start with verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You also model Christ. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good. To one another, to everyone, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all of the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See in Paul's instruction to the, the, the church in Thessalonica that they are supposed to be doing this together. All of these things, praying with each other, holding one another accountable, even having the letter read. Paul knew in his day that not only was it hard for many people to read the scriptures, many people were just illiterate. They couldn't read. And so they made it a practice to read the scriptures aloud. And that's why every once in a while, I find it's important for us to do that here too, right? To go to different verses in the Bible and to read them aloud because some of us struggle to get there. And I made a joke about it earlier about some people not being readers, but it really is hard for some people to just spend time reading. And I want to acknowledge that. And I want to say that it is not on you to do this just by yourself. The Lord has given us the body of believers so that we can read together, so that we can know him together. So don't be put off by the fact that reading scripture is hard because it is, but you can do this in the body, with the body. He wants us to do this together. So Jesus is the answer, right? What are the scriptures? They're Jesus. He lives them out. The power of God, it's Jesus. He lives again. The Sadducees come to Jesus and, and they're trying to test him. They're trying to trick him. Say, there's no resurrection. That's foolishness, Jesus. And he says, is not the reason that you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know me. You don't know me. You don't know that I am going to lay my, my life down and I'm going to take it back up again. I've told my disciples. My disciples know they still don't understand, but they've been told If you knew me, you would know this is the truth. This is what's going to happen. God is a God of the living. God is a God of eternal life. 
We need to talk about eternal life this morning. We should want to know the scriptures, the power of God, in order to go closer to Jesus and to live with and abide in him. John 15, 7 through 11, read that. Remind yourself what Jesus says about abiding in him. But in a second here, I'm going to turn to Revelation 21 because we need a reminder of why we're abiding in him. Yes, it is to know him. But it's also to be reminded that he has promised us something that we can never, ever get for ourselves. But that all of us want and all of us need. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You all know better than I how much mourning and pain and sorrow there is in your hearts and in your lives. In just the folks that I have talked to in the last week, I know that there are miscarriages in our congregation. I know that there are grandchildren who have died as a result of cancer. I know that there are weeks-old infants that are diagnosed with cancer. That's just three conversations from this last week. We need this hope. We are not here to be a clappy, happy people. Have you heard this description of churches? I have a friend who describes some churches as clappy, happy churches, where that's all they do, right? And I'm not trying to make you feel bad for clapping and praise the Lord. I'm saying if that's all you do, if you come here just to feel good, stop coming. Because that is not the only reason to be here. Come here to feel good because you know Jesus. Because you know everlasting life. Because you have the hope of everlasting life. Do come and enjoy the time with the body. As Paul said, we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to gather together. We're supposed to love one another and know Jesus together. So do that, but don't only draw joy from the moment. Draw it from the moment and from the everlasting hope that you have in Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather, because we want to know Jesus and we want to know the power of God in the scriptures. So here's your next step. John said at the beginning that the Mark 3 study guide is out. Pick it up. If you are a person who struggles to read the scripture, I promise you, this will help you to go through the book of Mark. And you don't have to do it by yourself. There are lots of small groups who are meeting, who are studying this. We can get you connected. If you just want to ask me or you want to ask Brooks or one of the other pastors or lay leaders, ask us. But do not struggle to read the scriptures by yourself. Get together in community and do it. Or join a group. We've got a volunteer fair today. Get in community with people another way. If you're not quite ready to just sit down and pour into the scriptures, Get together with other believers because I guarantee you something is going to happen this week. It would, benefit, it would benefit you to have other believers, other brothers and sisters to walk alongside of you. And they could be small things, they could be large things, but we all need Jesus and we need to know him. We need to know his word. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I cannot communicate the reality of who you are, but I know that you can. And I know that you do it in your word, so I pray, Lord, that we would lean into your word this morning, that we would desire to know it, to know the power of God, Lord, to know you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the hope that we have in everlasting life. Lord, Paul said that if there's no resurrection, then we're fools, and it's true. So we praise you and we thank you, Lord, that it is real and that you are real and that you have come and that you are coming again to save us. Lord, be with us today. There are many hurts and many burdens and we are overwhelmed, Lord. Don't let us be crushed. Don't abandon us. But raise us up with you, Lord. I pray that we would run. I pray that we would fly on wings like eagles, just as you've promised with the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Have a good week. Go in grace.